Every Wednesday, the new season of Famous Fate, titled Falls from Grace, features two new episodes, each focusing on a different scandalous figure from history. Today, I'm back to share another episode. If you enjoy it, please head over to the Famous Fates feed and subscribe today. These episodes are all free and only available on Spotify. The episode you're about to hear focuses on controversial Vice President Aaron Burr. A duel with Alexander Hamilton all but ended his political career, but did you know he was also later tried for treason? If you'd like to hear today's other episode on Richard Nixon, the only president to resign from office in anticipation of certain impeachment, head over to the Famous Fates feed on Spotify and subscribe for free today. On July 11, 1804, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton met in Weehawken, New Jersey, to settle their differences like gentlemen. Arguably, it would become the most infamous duel in American history. It's possible that neither man intended to seriously harm the other. Most duels were not fatal. Hamilton chose their weapons, two 56-caliber dueling pistols, notoriously difficult guns to fire accurately from 10 paces. Against the backdrop of the rising sun, the two men were positioned about 30 feet apart. At the agreed-upon command of present, both men turned and fired. Immediately, Alexander Hamilton collapsed, mortally wounded. Aaron Burr killed more than his political rival that day, The vice president's own career and legacy lay next to Hamilton in the New Jersey mud. Neither would ever recover. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 2 of Famous Fates Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less-than-savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry. They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. This week, we're covering politicians whose careers collapsed under the weight of their epic misdeeds. In this episode, Aaron Burr, the former senator and presidential candidate who became an accused murderer and traitor. Burr's political career started off with great promise. After serving as a Continental officer in the Revolutionary War, he became a successful New York City attorney. He then ran twice for the New York State Assembly, winning both times, and was later appointed New York State Attorney General in 1789. Though his reputation was one of being ambitious to a fault, Burr didn't contest it. He didn't mind people knowing that he had big dreams. In 1791, at the age of 37, Aaron Burr got yet another promotion. He was elected to the United States Senate. If 18th century America had a 40 under 40 list, he'd have been at the top. 
At the time, senators from New York were voted in by the state legislature, which answered to New York Governor George Clinton. Pleased with his service as attorney general, Clinton handpicked Burr as senator. However, a seat for Burr meant stripping the incumbent, Philip Schuyler, from office, who happened to be the father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton, the United States Secretary of the Treasury. For Clinton, it was a two-for-one deal. He'd be promoting someone he liked to the Senate while simultaneously punishing Hamilton for a recent slight. Hamilton had conspired to keep Clinton's friend, the state chancellor, out of George Washington's administration. This was Clinton's revenge. In this era, such backroom deals weren't unusual. Most people would have taken this minor defeat on the chin. But Hamilton held grudges. From that day on, he had nary a kind word to say about Burr. Before the new senator even took office, Hamilton was already fueling malicious water cooler gossip. While 37-year-old Burr started his new role as senator, Hamilton launched a vicious whisper campaign to discredit him. He even sent spies to listen in on Burr's private conversations with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, lest the three men ally against him. Incredibly, Burr either completely ignored or was oblivious to the fact that he was being watched. Rather than dwelling on political squabbles, he turned them into funny anecdotes in letters to his wife, Theodosia. Even more brazenly, barely a year after being elevated to the Senate by Governor Clinton, Burr had the brass to run the governor out of office. Clinton had become entangled in multiple corruption scandals, so a group of Federalists, the opposing party, backed Burr as a less corrupt candidate. They were even willing to look past the fact that Burr usually voted against their party in the Senate. Of course, the ambitious Burr couldn't say no, he entered the race, creating a perfect opportunity for Alexander Hamilton to avenge his father-in-law by humiliating Burr. Hamilton soon recruited the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, to enter the race. It was inappropriate for Jay to campaign, given his position, but supporters could campaign on his behalf, and he certainly wouldn't turn down being elected. The campaign was waged largely through letters to the editor, published in many newspapers along the East Coast. It's speculated that even Philip Schuyler himself anonymously wrote some of the letters attacking Burr. Meanwhile, Hamilton worked the social events circuit, spreading rumors to disparage Burr. With the election slated for April, by mid-March of 1792, Hamilton's gossip had stripped Burr of most of its Federalist endorsements. Without them, Burr faced the grim reality that he didn't have enough support to stay in the race. Crestfallen, Burr dropped out, hoping to wash his hands of the governor's race. But as fate would have it, he still had a role to play. When the election was held in April, there were irregularities with the ballot transportation. According to state law, only a sheriff or his deputy could deliver ballots to the New York State Capitol, and three counties hadn't followed the rules. All of which just happened to be counties that were expected to vote for John Jay. An interesting coincidence, given that the incumbent governor, George Clinton, still had tremendous influence over local officials like sheriffs. Clinton demanded the votes from all three violating counties be disqualified. 
Jay disagreed, demanding they be counted. To settle the matter, a 12-person task force was appointed in the state assembly called the Canvassing Committee. But they too were torn. They looked to the state's two U.S. senators, Aaron Burr and Rufus King, for guidance. King, a Hamilton ally, advised that all the ballots be counted. Burr, on the other hand, tried to compromise, advising that one county's ballot should be counted and the other two disqualified. In the end, the canvassing committee voted to disqualify all three counties' disputed ballots. This was more out of loyalty to George Clinton than a result of Burr's influence, but Hamilton and his Federalists blamed Burr anyway. In the end, while George Clinton won re-election by 108 votes, the election was widely viewed as a stolen one, particularly by Alexander Hamilton. By the fall of 1792, Hamilton was calling his determination to oppose Burr on all fronts a, quote, religious duty. But Hamilton's dedication to performing that duty would soon cost him his life and Aaron Burr his reputation. That's up next. In 1792, 38-year-old Senator Aaron Burr failed to become governor of New York, an office he'd had no problem trying to steal from the man who gave him his job as senator. However, Burr did succeed in winning the resentment of 39-year-old Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. Their bad blood only grew over the coming years as Burr's political star rose. Burr's party, known as the Republicans, were mostly united by their opposition to federalism. Early Republicans were small government, states' rights advocates, whereas Hamilton and his Federalists considered it more efficient to concentrate power at the federal level. Republicans looked down on Hamilton's ideas, critiquing them as reminiscent of the English monarchy. They feared the U.S. government might gradually become royalty by another name. The Federalists, in turn, painted Burr and the Republicans as unscrupulous and power-hungry. A 1795 poem about Burr, titled The Democratiad, read, Pride and pleasure, haughtiness and scorn, and mad ambition in his bosom burn. The poet wasn't entirely wrong. Burr did have high aspirations. The highest, in fact. After five years in the Senate, he felt he was ready to take on the presidency. With George Washington planning to retire in 1796, 39-year-old Burr positioned himself for a run. It seemed in the moment like Burr's star would finally rise beyond Hamilton's, who had stepped down as Treasury Secretary the previous year. What Burr didn't account for, though, was opposition from his own Republican Party, whose loyalty he'd taken for granted. While formal party structure was still decades away, there was a consensus among some Southerners that their region owned the Republican Party. Burr's northern roots and his desire to gradually eliminate slavery were seen as proof he wasn't a true Republican. The criticism wasn't unwarranted. Burr wasn't really partisan either way. He disagreed with the Federalists on monetary policy, but voted with them on other issues. In the end, the question of whether or not Burr would run for president was settled by the innovation of the political ticket. 
Originally, there was no process for directly choosing a vice president. The Electoral College only cast votes for president. The top choice got the job, and the runner-up became vice president. Now that two distinct political parties were forming, both sides organized to nominate two candidates, a presidential pick and a VP, hoping to lock down both offices. In this case, the Republicans intended to support Thomas Jefferson for president and Burr as his vice president. Unfortunately, they still had to deal with the tricky math of making sure their candidates came in first place and second place, respectively. This didn't quite work out for either party. In the end, Federalist John Adams won the presidency and Republican Thomas Jefferson became his VP. Burr came in a shockingly distant fourth place. While Jefferson won 68 electoral votes, his running mate only garnered 30. While Adams and Jefferson, two political enemies who were barely on speaking terms, were inaugurated, Burr went home empty-handed. Hamilton gloated, writing to a friend that, this event will not a little mortify Burr, Virginia has given him only one vote. In the coming year, Burr had bigger things to worry about. A 1797 economic crash devastated his finances, forcing the 40-year-old to mortgage his estate and sell all his belongings. His beloved daughter, Theodosia Jr., helped in the only way she knew how, by marrying a rich young man. Burr humbled himself and retired from the U.S. Senate that same year to return to the New York State Assembly. He knew that if he ever hoped to shoot for the presidency again, he needed to build a bigger base of support at home. During his return to the Assembly, Burr studied machine politics and made friends at Tammany Hall, the powerful New York City political organization that opposed federalism and supported extending the vote to white working-class men. In light of this, Burr focused his base-building efforts on becoming a champion of the middle class. In 1799, Burr delivered another insult to Alexander Hamilton, or at least Hamilton perceived it that way. At the time, the only banks in New York were controlled by Federalists. Not surprising, since one of the main planks in the Republican platform was opposition to banking. But, as it happens, a lot of Republicans in the city needed loans, and they were having a hard time getting them. Someone needed to bust the Federalist monopoly, and Burr knew just how to do it. At this same time, Manhattan was in dire need of a water utility service. Burr stepped up and founded the Manhattan Company, which promised to supply clean water to all of Lower Manhattan. Hamilton and his Federalists signed off on the charter application. What could they possibly oppose about clean water? Well, Burr had quietly added a clause to the corporation's charter that allowed it to issue loans. While it did ultimately provide a shoddy water system to the people of New York, the Manhattan Company primarily operated as a bank. This new bank of the Manhattan Company was competing directly with Alexander Hamilton's Bank of New York. Hamilton had been played for a fool. To add to the insult, Burr's bank lent money to poorer men that the Federalist banks wouldn't loan to. They could then use those loans to establish small businesses and buy property, and with land ownership came voting rights, 
if you are a white male. Thus, Burr built himself a completely new base of Republican supporters. With these voters quite literally in his debt, Burr had positioned himself favorably for another national campaign. In 1800, Burr again ran for vice president. Once again, he was on a ticket with Jefferson, who only agreed to this arrangement because Burr promised to deliver New York's electoral votes. Before the election, Burr and Jefferson discussed what to do in the unlikely event of a tied election. It had never happened before, but just in case it did, Burr promised that he would of course withdraw his name and yield the presidency to Jefferson. With his loyalty confirmed, Burr was sent off to work on getting the vote out in New York. Burr was perhaps the first true campaign strategist in American history. Before the election, he kept meticulous records on voter behavior to ensure his success. It worked. A little too well from Jefferson's perspective. Burr's new political organizing skills put both him and Jefferson at the top of the electoral vote tally, but not as number one and number two, the two men tied with 73 electoral votes each. Burr had agreed to step aside if this happened, but instead of conceding the presidency, he broke his promise and decided to fight for it. For the first time in American history, it fell to the House of Representatives to decide the presidency. Since both the tied candidates were Republicans, the Federalists had a choice to make. Support Jefferson, as everyone expected, or fight for Burr, who might be tempted to work with them in exchange for their support. But Alexander Hamilton's vocal opposition to Burr held great sway with the rest of his party. In his letters to the congressman, Hamilton nearly begged, for heaven's sake, let not the Federalist Party be responsible for the elevation of this man. Under pressure from Hamilton, Congress voted for Jefferson, meaning Burr lost the presidency but gained the vice presidency. If Hamilton had been satisfied with this slight, their fateful duel might never have taken place. But Hamilton wasn't satisfied. He was perpetually afraid that Burr would try for the presidency again in 1804. So for the entire four years of Jefferson's first term as president, Hamilton kept his whisper campaign against Burr going. Whenever possible, he encouraged rumors about Vice President Burr's allegedly prolific sexual conquests, ironic coming from someone who had himself been blackmailed by a mistress. And Jefferson never forgave Burr for contesting their tie. He gave his vice president little responsibility and shunned him from cabinet meetings. So despite holding the esteemed number two role in the country, dark years lay ahead for Burr. Even mudslinging ads would emerge, some of the first in American history. Handbills distributed in New York City accused Burr of seducing young women and spreading sexually transmitted infections. By 1804, when Jefferson began campaigning for re-election, Vice President Burr was unsurprisingly dropped from the ticket. Rejected and dejected, Burr fell back on his home state. He once again ran for governor of New York. But there was yet another surprise waiting for him at home. 
Hamilton, still committed to killing Burr's career, had allied with James Cheatham, a uniquely unscrupulous newspaperman. Together, they plotted to destroy Burr's chances in the 1804 gubernatorial election. Amongst the allegations levied against Burr in the papers, supposedly he encouraged male prostitution among his supporters and held orgies in his home. Burr's own supporters did their best to fight back, but the story of a moderate Republican vice president who was a devoted father and sometimes dated around town wasn't nearly as tantalizing as the headlines in Cheatham's paper. Even Republicans defected from Burr's campaign en masse. In April of 1804, when the votes were tallied, Burr didn't just lose the governor's seat, He lost it by the largest margin in New York history at the time, securing a paltry 41% of the total votes. 48-year-old Burr was in the absolute valley of his political career. He was still the sitting vice president, but he was a lame duck, maybe even a dead duck. There was no way he could possibly rebound his reputation now, and Hamilton couldn't resist bragging a little about Burr's downfall. On April 23rd, shortly after the election, the Albany Register published a letter it considered newsworthy from Republican Charles D. Cooper. It was addressed to Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, the very same man who was displaced from his Senate seat by Burr. In the letter, Cooper relayed Alexander Hamilton's opinions, namely that Burr was, quote, a dangerous man and not to be trusted with the reins of government. The letter closed with an ambiguous claim that there was something about Burr so despicable that it was unfit to commit to writing, meaning it was likely sexual in nature. Burr was furious. He suddenly realized that throughout his political career, everyone who'd accused him of perversion had been a friend of Hamilton. In June of 1804, Burr wrote Hamilton, demanding an apology for the letter. His enemy gave none. Hamilton replied it was unfair to expect him to account for another man's interpretation of what he said. This final spurning left Burr with no recourse but to demand satisfaction under the code duello, the formal etiquette of dueling. This decision was Burr's obligation under the strict honor code of the time. Nonetheless, it would end one life and ruin another. That's up next. And now, back to the story. In June of 1804, 48-year-old Aaron Burr challenged 49-year-old Alexander Hamilton to a duel. Unlike many gentlemen of his era, Burr had generally avoided dueling. But by that summer, the sitting vice president felt he had no other options. Failing to issue a challenge after Hamilton's insult and total refusal to apologize would have branded Burr a coward, an outcome he couldn't stomach, especially after the death of his presidential dreams. So the challenge was made, and Hamilton accepted. Dueling was illegal in both New York and New Jersey, but the latter rarely prosecuted duelists, so they decided to cross the river and duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. Knowing that they might not return alive, both men put their affairs in order. 
Burr's foremost concern was that his daughter, Theodosia, would be taken care of. He wrote his daughter's husband, Joseph Alston, begging him to continue providing Theodosia with intellectual stimulation should he perish in the duel. Hamilton, on the other hand, busied himself preserving his public reputation. He wrote out a lengthy missive titled Apologia, which explained why he agreed to the duel. Refusing it would have marked him a coward and destroyed his future in politics. Hamilton also promised to reserve and throw away his shot at Burr. In other words, he would miss or not fire at all on purpose. To this day, historians debate whether or not Hamilton really intended to throw away his shot. After all, he supplied the dueling pistols, which were loaded with one-ounce balls, a deadlier ammunition compared to other options. On July 11, 1804, both men arrived at the dueling grounds at sunrise. In order to reduce the potential danger, it was agreed that both men would fire quickly after the signal was given, with little time to aim. Hamilton paused the duel briefly to put on his glasses for a clearer view, but it didn't help much. When Nathaniel Pendleton shouted, present, and the men turned around, the sun was in his eyes. And while Burr had the sun behind him, he wasn't familiar with the pistols Hamilton had provided. With both men disadvantaged, it seemed the duel might end like most did with honor preserved and two living, if rattled, combatants. Objectively, no one knows who shot first. Each man's second claimed his friend was more reluctant to fire. What is known is that Hamilton raised his gun as if to adjust his aim to the light, then fired a shot that went over Burr's head and struck a tree branch. He didn't take dead aim, but it also wasn't the reserve or throw away my fire shot that Hamilton promised. Either before or after Hamilton fired, Burr shot Hamilton in the right hip. The bullet careened through Hamilton's liver and ended up in his spine. Hamilton collapsed on the spot. Burr advanced towards his enemy, looking remorseful. If the two duelists spoke, those words have been lost to history. Both men were swiftly transported away from the dueling grounds, Burr to his home and Hamilton to his doctor. Oddly, Burr soon sent a friendly note by messenger, expressing hopes for his enemy's swift recovery. Burr was praying for Hamilton's health, but not out of altruism. As soon as word spread that Hamilton had been shot, outrage against Burr ignited the Atlantic coast. For once, Republicans and Federalists agreed the vice president was a barbaric assassin and subject to prosecution. Burr was shocked. He'd presumed people would understand he was honor-bound to duel, especially after Hamilton's insults ended his gubernatorial campaign. But Burr had misjudged his rival's influence and the masses' tolerance for dueling. When Hamilton died the next day on July 12th, Aaron Burr became the first, and so far only, sitting vice president to kill another man. It would only get worse from there. A New York coroner's jury began an inquest for murder. Even though the duel had taken place in New Jersey, and prosecution normally would have originated there, 
Byrd didn't stick around to see if it had hold constitutional muster. The disgraced vice president fled to South Carolina on July 21st, where he briefly stayed with Theodosia and her husband. Ultimately, New York State brought, then dropped, murder charges against Burr, only to indict him again for violating the state's law against dueling. Meanwhile, New Jersey convened its own grand jury, and this one indicted Burr for murder. Burr allegedly joked to his daughter that the two states were competing to see which shall have the honor of hanging the vice president. There was more than a grain of truth to the witticism. By that time, he'd fled further south into Spanish Florida. Lying low and running far appeared to be the right move. The fury over Hamilton's death slowly subsided in the coming weeks. Burr could thank the cool heads that prevailed in the newspapers. They argued that there was no proper legal way to prosecute Burr. They were right. New Jersey dropped its indictment since Hamilton had died in New York. And at the same time, New York withdrew its murder charges because Hamilton was shot in New Jersey. The competition to hang the vice president had totally dissolved. By the winter of 1804, it was once again considered safe for Burr to be seen in political society. He quietly returned to New York and Pennsylvania, where he resumed socializing with old friends. Most were kind enough not to mention the duel over supper. On March 2nd, 1805, Burr bid his farewell to the vice presidency by way of an address on the Senate floor. Arguably, it was one of the finest works of oratory in American history. Even the Washington Federalist, a notoriously Burr-hating paper, was forced to admit that, quote, the whole Senate was in tears. In the speech, Burr forgave all his critics and enemies, saying that he had no memory for injuries. He closed by encouraging the Senate to reject partisanship and praise sound reasoning. Then, a hunched and broken man, he left the Senate floor for the last time. His dreams of being remembered as a great statesman were in tatters. Now, all he had left was a burning desire to see more of the country he'd helped to found. That day would be the last time the country ever saw Burr in a positive light. The story from here is murky, but we do know he spent the next seven months traveling through the South and West. He was attempting to raise a small private army with an eye towards invading Spanish-held territories in Mexico. At the time, it seemed likely that the United States would eventually go to war with Spain over territories at the southern border. And at nearly 50 years old, Burr discussed arranging for a filibuster in the event of such a war. At the time, filibuster was a military term for an invasion by a private army. It was illegal during peacetime, but permitted during war if it was done to help the national effort. Burr's initial plan for a filibuster may have been patriotic, but patriotism can't explain his letter to British Foreign Minister Anthony Mary. Burr asked in writing for Britain's support in convincing the western half of the United States to secede from the east. What he planned to do with this newly seceded territory is up for debate. But Burr made numerous allies, including future President Andrew Jackson and the United States' highest-ranking military officer, General James Wilkinson. 
As he toured the country drumming up support, Burr also gathered important maps and documents, hired soldiers, and solidified the future invasion plans, what he called the revolutionizing of Mexico. Not unlike earlier founding fathers, Burr saw himself as a revolutionary freeing the people of Mexico. Never mind the fact that he was simply plotting to replace one colonial power with another one led by himself. Burr kept plotting through the fall and winter of 1806, but in October, one of his own allies sold him out. General James Wilkinson ratted out Burr's plan for treason, turned over Burr's letters about the private army to President Jefferson. It later became known that General Wilkinson was working with the Spanish government, making him a double agent in the plan and just as much of a traitor to his country as Burr was. And judging by the letters, Burr was certainly a traitor, in Jefferson's eyes, a crime punishable by death. Troops were sent to arrest Burr in early 1807. Though he attempted to flee, he was caught by Jefferson's men in Alabama, who dragged him back to Virginia to be tried. Given the charge of treason was against a former vice president, the case against Aaron Burr went straight to the desk of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall. After several months of evidence gathering, in August of 1807, the trial commenced. Jefferson made clear he wanted Burr to be found guilty, not just because of their personal enmity, but because Jefferson truly believed Burr had committed treason. After all, he had raised a private army to split the nation in half, conquer Mexico, and create his own empire. But the laws on treason said a person must commit an overt act against the country. Burr's plot didn't make it that far. He'd been caught before they actually got a chance to take up arms against the United States. So despite pressure from the president, on September 1st, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Acquittal, however lucky, didn't ensure Burr the safety of returning to normal life. He was hanged in effigy at protests across the Atlantic coast. So he left the country, borrowing money to pay for a passage by sea. In October of 1807, 51-year-old Burr departed for Europe, where he would stay in self-imposed exile for four years. When he finally braved a return to the U.S. in 1812, Burr lived intermittently under his mother's maiden name of Edwards, quietly practicing law without calling attention to his old reputation or debts. For the rest of his years, Burr lived a banal life of legal work. The most exciting event was his second marriage to a wealthy widow, 19 years his junior in 1833. Burr was 77 and Eliza Jumel was 58. Within a few months, Jumel decided Burr was only after her money and filed for divorce. As her lawyer, she chose Alexander Hamilton Jr. Talk about twisting the knife. Thanks to this stress and his advanced age, Burr deteriorated rapidly after the filing. He had a stroke in 1834. He was moved into a shabby Staten Island boarding house for daily care. Burr died on September 14, 1836, at the age of 80. By coincidence, his divorce was finalized the same day. He was later buried in the Princeton Cemetery in New Jersey, 
next to his father, Aaron Burr Sr. Aaron Burr is rarely remembered fondly, whether in historical texts or in fictionalized renditions like the musical Hamilton. Amongst his more severe descriptions are murderer, narcissist, traitor, pervert, gold digger. From more sympathetic perspectives, he's remembered as one of the unluckiest men of his time. A man hounded at every turn by gossip and slander, charged with capital offenses he didn't commit, and humiliated by a divorce on his dying day. Ultimately, Burr's legacy is a confounding one. In some ways, his politics were far more progressive and forward-thinking than those of the beloved Federalist he killed, Alexander Hamilton. But assessing Burr's life is like looking at a magic eye puzzle. Shift the angle of your gaze just a little bit, and a completely different picture emerges. Perhaps it's good mental exercise for us to remember Aaron Burr as an avatar of duality, the heroic villain. Thanks again for tuning in to Falls from Grace. You can find more episodes of Falls from Grace and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another story of remarkable success and even more remarkable downfall. Famous Fates was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Falls from Grace was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 